Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Everybody and welcome to Nightlight. We have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that amazing introduction. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. Check his website out. His native storytelling telling talents are quite profound. They're all they're all stories that, that are verbal stories that have been passed down through the centuries, and it's it's a really cool way to remember your history. Possibly we should be looking more into something like that. So, for tonight, Mark has some very eclectically oriented, unusual people, as always, to entertain us and inform us. He's, he's gathered a couple together that, that are um, really cool, and it, it feels like it's going to be a really great evening. So, uh, be ready to have your uh, mind enlightened and stretched a little bit. Uh, Mark? How are you doing tonight? Fine, how are you? Doing well. Doing well. Yeah, last week uh, you said <laughs> several people called in for me to do readings. Um, and it's, I, I don't do that. I just talk about old stuff and be radio eye candy. But I, I'm appreciative of their vote of confidence for me. But uh, and you know also very appreciative of all the listener supports uh, as well. But uh, yeah, I think uh, at tonight's show is an example of why the CDC has declared nightlight a public health nuisance. You know we're going to be raising <laughs> IQs at an alarming rate uh, tonight. So, uh, and you know we have a. Uh, Another new guest for Nightlight as well, uh, but uh, Ron is not a uh, stranger to radio. Uh, our guest is Ron Rademacher, and he's one of my colleagues at Ancient American Magazine. Uh, he is a travel writer. His book is Oddities and Rarities. Uh, he's the founder of the website michiganbackroads.com. Uh, he's also a radio personality and a presenter 
a, a fr- frequently a presenter at the annual Ancient Artifact Preservation Society conferences. He'll, he'll be there uh, this year, and he he is the leading authority on the enigmatic Macintosh stone. So, uh, just want to welcome Ron to Nightlight. How are you, Ron? I am uh, struggling. Usually, uh, my response to that question would be that I'm happy, healthy, and feel great. But I'm struggling with you being uh, described as radio eye candy. (laughs) It's very appropriate. If you Google radio eye candy, you will find my picture there. And Bob is perfect. You won't find it. I'm I'm doing great, and I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) The radio I can't. Oh my god! <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, like the first hour tonight. Uh, uh, this is becoming like uh, almost like a, a weekly occurrence on uh, Nightlight Part Two. Is what was going on in Michigan during ancient times? Uh, it's, you know what Lon's been on a couple times, and you know uh, Richard Balthazar, what, what like a month ago. I, we're getting all these stories about uh, ancient Michigan and all, all these uh, unusual artifacts, and yeah, and I came across. You know, your articles in uh, Ancient American, you're in edition 115 and 120, you know, these uh, really uh, intriguing photos of this Macintosh stone. Uh, it, it really uh, captured my attention, and I was like, you know, this is something uh, that needs to be uh, discussed, and uh, all right, I, I, you know, let, let's let's hear like a you know little brief history on where was this stone found? Uh, you know, who who found it? You know, the location. You know, is is there like a archaeological context in which it was found? Well, let me. Excellent, uh, excellent questions and. Uh, so I'll give you a brief rundown. Uh, I first ran across the existence of this stone in a little booklet called Coming for Copper. Uh, it's uh, published by the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society, and it's Fred Ridholm's uh, tome about the, all the copper that's missing from Isle Royal and the Keweenaw Peninsula. And on page 26 of that little booklet was this small picture of this little stone and it's a small mark stone found like superior and it's about the size of an almond now everything is going to get a little strange here but this is this is all about serendipity because the series of coincidences and pure accidents that happen that we're going to talk about over the next 45 minutes it, it, it's just absolutely amazing so i'll start with where it was found this stone was found on the tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula, up where the uh, missile site used to be, and it was found about 50 feet above the current lake shore level. 
And it was found by a guy, Charlie McIntosh, who's what he's a, a, a forester. He goes out and marks trees that need to be forested off. And uh, he, in his spare time, goes out and picks up agates, you know, and little agates, they're like little gemstones. And I wouldn't know one if it dropped out of the sky and hit me on the head, but when you polish them up, they're beautiful. Well, he gets them by the bucket full and he went back to his garage one day and was cleaning them. And he discovered one of them was covered with these carvings. So this happened. And now I'm going to give you one more, an odd thing that happened. I was going through the Upper Peninsula, and I track these things down. I go looking for uh, enigmas and uh, anomalies, and I really don't have a dog in the hunt as to where they came from. I go after, is this thing real? Does it still exist? Can we go see it? And then from there, I let the experts take over. So I was going through the Upper Peninsula, and I went to a place called Nema. And I stopped at a place called the Nema Inn and got talking to the people there about, you know, working with me on Michigan Backroads. And one thing led to another, and we got talking about tracking down these anomalies. And I said, yeah, I, heard, I saw this picture of this Macintosh stone here. I said, have you ever heard of this? You'll hardly believe it. The guy I was talking to was Charlie Macintosh who is co-owner of that inn, and he is the one who found the stone. So that's how I ran across it for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, what, what, does it still exist? He said, oh, yeah, sure, you want to see it? And he went back and he got it, and he brought it out, and we began to examine it. Uh, and that's how I found out about it for the very first time. This is going to be 10 or 12 years ago. Okay, and in the... Uh, both edition uh, 115 and 120 editions. Uh, yeah, you do have some photos, and when uh, tomorrow, when the YouTube uh, video uh, or, or, or archive becomes available, uh, you know, the, the photos are also going to uh, scroll by. Uh, on the archive, and you know, you know, people can follow uh, along, uh, you know, with the uh, r- rotating pictures. You know, there there are a number of uh, uh, you know, different angles you know, you've taken of it. Uh, you know, there's uh, you know, say a, a little bit of weathering. Uh, maybe uh, you, you, know, you do mention the possibility of. Uh, uh, this being carried by a sailor, and you know, it's uh, not uncommon for someone to have like a coin or something like that in their uh, pocket, and you know, they just kind of rub rub the stone or uh, coin, you know, just uh, uh, like uh, uh, you know, like a little grounding technique. So it, it, maybe some of the uh, weathering or uh, of you know the ends could be from that, but uh, the, the images are pretty clear. Um, you know what? Are, well, they, they, they are. Yeah, you know, what are we they seeing? Are clear on the well, they're, they are clear on the new high res pictures. Let me just take you through what a strange little rock this is. 
and and these are on uh, Michigan back roads, and you're going to put them up. This mm-hmm. is the first time we've ever talked about the the new things. So let me just take you through the history of. We found this stone, and there are two sides to the stone. Both sides are heavily carved, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we're going to have a picture up there that shows it with a dime next to it, so people can see how small this little thing is because. That's going to bring up the question of, you know, what kind of tool could possibly have been used right. to carve this little tiny thing, because these are very detailed. But the, basically, to begin with, we called one side of the stone the moon side, and the other side the spider side. And here's why. When I first saw the stone, and if you go get the book, this little booklet coming for copper, this, the stone is depicted there vertically. So, of course, that's how we all began to look at it. Well, then when I photographed it, Charlie McIntosh at the name of Inn let me, he brought it out, let me photograph it. I laid it on its side, not, you know, because I'm not, I, I, that's just how I did it. And so the moon side shows what appears to be a crescent moon. That's why we call it the moon side. It appears to be a crescent moon. And then several other carvings, all in cartouches, that we really didn't know what they were. This is now we're going back eight years now. On the other side, which we called, uh, just for the purposes of the discussion, as I was trying to track down what this thing was, was a side that we called the spider side. And that is because on one end of that stone, there is what appears to be an eight-legged spider. And if you look at it, you can see his fat body, and you can see two legs on the left lower, two legs on the right lower, two legs on the – and so it's eight-legged, and there's a – that side was the spider side. Everything else on that side was just gobbledygook. We had no idea what any of it could be. So I've got a, a moon. i got a half moon, a crescent moon, and I've got a spider, and I began to talk to people all across the United States sent them pictures all over Europe. Uh, I'm not an uh, epigraphic expert. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm a storyteller. But when I find something like this, I track it down. And so I sent these pictures all over, and people who responded said, oh, yeah, that we think that this is a spider. And, of course, a spider is a symbol from across the world. And uh, a crescent moon is also in the patina on this stone. It's got a high polish to it in its original color because of brownish. And so people who had looked at it were figuring that this stone was what could be dated between 1 or 200 BC to 2 or 300 AD. And so from that dating and the possible spider and the possible crescent moon, we thought, well, Either this is Native American, possibly Hopewell, uh-huh. or it could be Mediterranean with these two symbols, and it could be a prayer stone that a sailor would have carried with him as a totem uh, or a blessing stone uh-huh. to remember when to say his prayers. Uh, and, and that's where that kind of rested for many years. In fact, this is not something you'll hear every day, Mark, but in my book, uh, oddities and rarities, the current existing chapter on this stone is almost entirely wrong in every single conclusion that is drawn. Everything that we thought 
was wrong. And would you like me to tell you why? Sure. And how that came about? So here's what happened. So that's where all this rested for, for several years. I mean, I tracked it down, but I have a, a, a business to run, and I, you know, I can only do this so much, and no one really knew what this was. Now we jumped to about three years ago, and I was at the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society uh, conference, and Charlie McIntosh let me take the stone with me because there were going to be a lot of people there who knew this kind of symbolism and might be able to interpret it. And I beat on everybody to, I mean, we were merciless, you know, to get people to get their little, the loops out, those, uh, you know, the magnifying glasses that jewelers use and Mm -hmm. look at the stone and people looked at it and nobody really had any idea what they were seeing. They were like, yeah, I don't, you know, I mean, this is, these are a lot of luminaries. Uh, Ms. Willow, thought that the crescent moon might be a ship, but really nobody had came up with anything else. All right. Now get ready for the next bit of serendipity. Okay. I left that conference. This is two or three years ago. I left the conference, went back to the name in to return the stone to Charlie. And it was a Sunday. We got a Sunday morning and, you know, and we're sitting around the inn and talking. There were a bunch of guests there. And Charlie was asking me what all these, the people thought at the, uh, at the conference. And I said, you know, we really didn't get anywhere. Nobody could really see anything here. And we're, I'm just as baffled as I can ever be. So the guests who are sitting there said, well, can we see it? So we opened up my laptop and brought up the pictures. And we're just going through the pictures of what I have. And a woman, uh, Dottie Parsons, is sitting there, and she's looking at it, and she said, well, wait a minute, stop that picture right there. Can you flip that over? And I said, yeah, sure, I can flip it over. And so the, the, the side that is ordinarily called spider, I flipped it over, and she looked at it, and she said, well, this is plain as day. She said, that's a, that's a man right there. That's a man's face right there. And when you see this on your feed that you guys are going to put up, the, there are three cartouches on this side, and in the center, very clearly, uh, once you know what to look for, is a man's face, and he's got his hands up in the air, or he's holding a, a sword, and then just below his head is what looks like a coat of arms, and then below that is his legs. He's kneeling. To the right of him is the image that was the spider. But now we can see that that's actually another man sitting on some kind of a seat or a throne with his hands up in the air in a, in a, a posture of a blessing or benediction. Uh-huh. To the extreme left now, we have, I'll stop in a second. Let me just give this part and then I'll, I'll let you j- jump in. To the left is another part that was always, all this was all gobbledygook. Now to the left, there's another uh, cartouche there and there is another uh, human image there. So go ahead and ask me what you're going to ask. Okay. Well, uh, you know, your, your chapter is wrong just because he's got so many uh, new interpretations of this artwork. Well, it's wrong in that yes, it's wrong in that for two reasons. First, we were I was looking at it the wrong way, and, and those are it's wrong. It's not wrong that anybody was wrong. It's just that it's right. incorrect in its interpretations. Right. Because what we were seeing uh, was 
but uh, you, you know, very seldom do you hear an author say, "Oh yeah, this is everything I wrote uh, here is, is crap," uh, uh, and I'm going to rewrite right. it, because, you know, because. So uh, yeah, so it is. It is. So then, now, th- now here's the next thing that happens. So we we're all looking at it. There's eight or ten of us sitting around there, and none of us are professionals. These are just people. And uh, but because we looked at that upside down, which turned out to be correct, now we go to the moon side, and we said, well, let's let's flip that over and see what is there. And so we flip that over, and now the crescent moon uh, looks like a double-hulled ship, which is what Ms. Willow had said it. She thought it was a ship, not a crescent moon. Everything else on it remained enigmatic. There is what appears to be a bird head above the uh, double-hulled ship, which also turns out that it's not a bird head. But so we looked it over, and we were all astonished because you can very clearly see these human figures carved on the stone. I mean, it's, it's not gobbledygook. They are human figures. And when I – this is all just happening impromptu at the end. So when I left, uh, I said to Charlie, I said, you know what? Can I borrow the stone? Because this is it. I am going to employ a professional photographer. And let's, I'm going to get this thing under high resolution, high magnification, and get really good pictures taken of what's on this stone because I can't see it. But if we're missing that, just because of my poor photography, I want to. I've, I've got to pursue this further, and that's so that's what we decided to do. And and Ron, you mentioned the if you look at the stone. One way you mentioned the, uh, you know, people saw crescent moon, and you know, you do uh, have had that symbol showing up in some of the Hopewell earthworks, like you know, the uh, like semicircular patio in front of the uh, Circleville mound that was in the. Uh, a big uh, circle, uh, and you know the Hopewell were very sophisticated astronomers. Uh, so that you know, could be an example of some type of uh, Hopewell uh, artwork. Uh, but you know, you said if you turn the Look at the stone another way. You get like the double-hulled ship uh, image. You know who's building, like doing this naval engineering uh, at some time in the remote past. Well, this is the another excellent question, and this is going to because the series of I mentioned earlier that there are a series of coincidences and serendipity that took place to how we've gotten to where we are on this now. Uh, and I'll give you that part, but the 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 interpretation of the the moon side as being a crescent moon 
almost everybody agreed with it. And it was only because that was the way that they were, that was the orientation that they were shown the stone. No one really knew about this stone. It was in this coming for uh, copper and it was shown vertically rather than horizontally as I Mm -hmm. show it. And when I was sending it out to people, I was sending it out uh, a specific way. And the way that I sent it out, a crescent moon is what catches the eye and a spider and a you know, the Native Americans had spiders, the Hopewell had spiders. Uh, uh, the spider uh, totem is ancient. So, you know, we, we kind of maybe we kind of saw what we expected to see. Uh, and so no one really made a mistake. It was just, you know, it was only because this woman had to say, well, that's that's a man right there. That's not gobbledygook. Turn it over. So when I had the pictures taken, the high-res pictures taken, uh, a, a couple other things happened. Um, I, uh, I, uh, now when you look at these online, you'll see that the stone appears to be gray because the way the high res pictures are taken is they put this thing in the light box and then he, the camera is a computer driven camera and it makes slices. And these images are made up of 35 slices. So it gets very deep. And it brings out all kinds of detail we could not see before. So when we put this up now and we see uh, what we call uh, men, the, the image of the man in a, in a uh, position of uh, prayer or on his knees is very clear in the center. And the mm-hmm. position of another man sitting on the right with his hands up and his feet up and down, his shins are there. He might have a halo. All this becomes very clear because now we know that's what we're supposed to be looking for. And if you go to the other side where the ship is, uh, it, 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 it's, yeah, you can see that, well, yeah, if you turn it over this way, it may not be a crescent moon, maybe it is a, a double-hulled ship, uh, but maybe that thing above it is the head of a bird. So here, and then there are other cartouches on the ship side that have not yet been interpreted. But you can see the patina, even though it's turned gray, the patina is very clear on how old this is. So now here's what happens next. So, because this gets even stranger. Uh, so I'm sitting one day, uh, as I do, and I'm looking through a book called Bronze Age America by uh, Barry Fowl. Uh-huh. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with that book. And I'm flipping through the book and just, you know, not really paying a whole lot of attention to what I'm doing. I'm flipping through the book. And I come to a page, and there's an illustration that shows, uh, and, I, and I sent it to you guys, and I'm sure you're going to put it up. It's called Barry Fell. And there's a picture of a double-hulled ship with little dots. And then next to it is a symbol. Below it is a symbol is almost identical to the bird head that's above the ship on the McIntosh stone. And it's called a buckler or a buckler. Now, this image is from a Bronze Age carving, and it's from um, a museum in Scandinavia. And the way that Barry Fell interpreted this carving was thrust upon the water as for a journey. So I'm looking at this, and I realize, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I've seen this somewhere before. And if you take the image that is there uh, from Barry Fowles' book and put it next to um, the, uh, 
the part of the uh, the Macintosh stone that we call boat 12 on the left hand side you can see the two hull ship and above it is not a bird head but it's that same carving that almost a figure eight carving which they call the buckler or a buckler and those two images combined translate into uh, thrust upon the waters as for a voyage it wouldn't mean much except that on the other side are three men in various positions of benediction or blessing or hope which could easily be interpreted as you know a benediction for a for a journey so that was another uh, interesting and there's one more if you want to hear I've got one more very odd uh, coincidence that happened with this. Yeah, go, 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 go ahead. Okay. So I'm. Uh, uh, so this has all happened. The the uh, I was going to bring up the timeline again. So I had the pictures taken several months after the AAPS meeting, and then I got them back. And of course, I didn't have time to really go through them. But then when I saw the Barry Felt, the picture from Barry Felt's book which I'll have at the AAPS meeting so everybody can see the picture is actually there. Um, th- that I saw that, so I went back to the high-res pictures that the photographer had done. I said, wait a minute, geez, this is... So then several more months go by, and I'm in the Upper Peninsula this past January or February, whatever it was. I, went, I was uh, up near Antonagon during this last polar vortex storm, whatever that was, January, February, you know, when we had snow... And, and I was trapped in my cabin. I couldn't literally could not get out of the cabin. And I'm not a television watcher. I don't watch television, but I had the TV on for background noise. And uh, I was writing away and I had the history channel on. And oddly enough, uh, Scott Walter was on and they were talking about the Westford night. Now I don't know anything about the Westford night. Uh, this is a, a carving of a stone that was found in Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts. Right. And uh, it's been very controversial. It's got, you know, there's a, a, a knight there with a long sword, and he's Caucasian-looking and Templar-looking. And the, the story was about, uh, the, the, the edition on TV was about that they were commemorating a bronze statue. Yeah, it's from the, the Westford uh... Knight. Yeah, this is Sinclair voyage to America in 1398 yeah, yeah, yeah. or something. Okay, great, great. Yeah, so so you know more about it. Obviously, everybody knows more about it than I do because I I don't look much outside of Michigan. But that's right. And it was and it was 1394, so it was before 1492. So of course, it's very controversial. And I'm sitting there and I'm just doing what I'm doing. And you know the way that that providence jumps into your life. I just happened to glance up at, the, up at the screen, and at that moment, they flashed an image of the bronze commemorative statue and a line sketch uh, of the Westford Knight, at the actual stone, and it's the mm-hmm. line sketch. And there it is. It's not on his face, and it's not on his sword, but on his shield is a double-hulled ship and above it, above it is the buckler symbol. It's exactly the same symbol that is on the uh, is in Barry Fell's book, and exactly the same symbol 
that is carved into the Macintosh stone. I mean, I was just dumbfounded because I had never even thought about uh, that, that aspect of it. But here we have uh, a Bronze Age carving from Scandinavia and a stone that was found on the Kiwaha Peninsula uh, in the mid-1900s. And the, West, and a, the Westford Knight, all with exactly the same symbolism carved on them, all connected with knights and all connected with voyages on the sea. I mean, the coincidence is so, if it's a coincidence, it's the most astronomical coincidence I've ever heard of. Well, uh, Ron, when we had Richard Thornton on, you know, I don't know, about a month ago, five weeks ago, uh, and he, he was talking about some of the uh, petroglyph images that he saw in Scandinavia and the, the same symbol was appearing in uh, Georgia. Uh, you know, they were like you know, a couple, two, three thousand years old. Um, you know, that's what he's asserting. Uh, I think when uh, you know we had uh, Bill Mann on back uh, last fall, he was talking about the some uh, very close similarities between um, the. Uh, uh, you know, flag of the uh, Earls of Orkney and the uh, uh, Micmac Nation flag. Uh, they're just almost; those were almost identical as as well. So it, it, this transatlantic uh, artistic motif imagery keeps reappearing with, with um, many of our uh, researcher guests. Yeah, and I mean, that shouldn't really be surprising if we, if you hark back to the, to like 1000 AD or before that mm -hmm. and up to 1500 AD, yeah, most people were illiterate. Most, most people were illiterate. Most people did not have letters. They could, you could, you know, in fact, some, some nations didn't actually have alphabets. I mean, so a lot was done with symbolism. If you watch um, old movies, period movies, like even things like uh, Barry Lyndon that uh, Stanley Kubrick did, that you, mm -hmm. there's a scene there where uh, Ryan O'Neill is riding up to a pub, and the sign hanging out in front of the pub doesn't have words on it. It has a symbol on it, and everyone knew that that symbol represented that it was a public house, and you could get food and drink there. And so this was this is very very common to use symbols um, to represent ideas, important uh -huh. ideas, and that was where the whole uh, concept about this stone being a. At one time we we were fairly convinced that it was a a Phoenician or a Minoan uh, prayer stone because those sailors were known to be from many different nations and many of them carried. Uh, a prayer stone with them, uh -huh. so that when they were 
when uh, when they were on the waters or when important dates would come around because some of these voyages lasted a long, long time. Uh, they would know they could that still reminded them of how and when to do their their uh, you know their prayers. And so th- these are yeah th- this is what what amazes me is how how odd it is that more people don't make the connection. Between and I had not made it. I mean, I don't. You know, I'm. I was caught completely by surprise by this Westford Knight thing uh, because here was one more example of. Not, they're not similar carvings. They're all, they're identical carvings, and they're from three different places in the world from three different timelines. Uh, it, it's almost impossible that it's a. I would just wonder how many other things are out there in small museums and small collections that support this idea that uh, these voyagers not only came here, but they came here and went back repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Let's see, and, and Ron, you know, when you talk about the appearance of this. Small stone seems like a cartouche. Yeah, you, know, you know, probably um, most of the listeners are thinking, "Oh, it, it sounds Egyptian, Middle Eastern," and uh, and you know the spider imagery. Uh, okay, and get get that from you know uh, just different areas of the world. But you know, we know that uh, you know the cobra was part of the. Uh, Egyptian iconography. Uh, yeah, there's also uh, you also note that there's a uh, fish image on uh, the stone. Okay, yeah, that could be. Uh, it it is a, a Christian image from what I think that started like two or three hundred eight. AD. So it, it, uh, this stone just seems real, uh, like a. It, it's hard to date because you might have uh, different religious symbols uh, carved into it, or it, it's, yeah, it's coming it's from a, different yeah, peri- uh, parts of the world. It's it's a good you know, it's very yeah very good detail to point out that the term cartouche is an unfortunate one. Uh, I think I may have been the first person who used it because a cartouche is really uh, a set of symbols that are separated by a frame, and it was first used in conjunction with uh, Egyptian cartouches that were used to frame the name of a pharaoh in a hieroglyph. Uh, and this stone does have. Like on, on the, the side that has the men on it, there are three distinct frames. If you saw it on the wall, you call it a triptych. There are three distinct mm-hmm. frames. And so the word cartouche came up, which may have got people thinking about, well, you know, maybe this is uh, Mediterranean. Maybe it is uh, Egyptian. I don't, I don't think there's anything Egyptian about it, but I will say this about that. And, and that is that w- the way that I go at trying to figure out what something like this is. And again, I'm, you know, my training is very limited. Uh, I do it by uh, the process of elimination is not. And what it is not is Egyptian. 
There's no question it is not Egyptian, but it could very, and it is probably not Native American. When you see the pictures of the men side, you'll say, well, these are not, these are not Native American men. These are obviously European appearing men. So, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not very, very old. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that it's medieval. It could be far older than that because European Europeans were messing around in the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, you know, so it. But it, it, so it, it, the men on it, the way that they are depicted, and if we agree that the double-hulled ship is in fact a ship and not a crescent moon, it eliminates pretty much Egyptian, and it eliminates Native American, which drops it into uh, Mediterranean. Now, some people say, well, you know, there's, you know, how could the Mediterranean people have gotten over and dropped this on the Keweenaw Peninsula? And I'm working up a whole article on, uh, on the copper culture, but let me just say this about that. A lot of people don't realize that the distance from the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea to the western end at the Straits of Gibraltar, that sailing distance is greater than the distance from the bulge of Africa to Brazil. From the bulge of Africa to Brazil is a shorter distance than the length of the Mediterranean Sea. So the distance was not the issue. Is is the, the that's the only point I'm making here. Well, they couldn't have made that great long sail. Well, they were doing it every day. You know, the Phoenicians were doing were sailing back and forth across the, the Mediterranean every day, which is a far more dangerous body of water than uh, the South Atlantic will ever be. So, yeah, the, the, so the word cartouche, you know, is an unfortunate one. But it was the only way to really to describe it, uh, to, to describe what's on the stone. And please keep in mind, this thing is the size of a quarter. Uh, you know, and how mm-hmm. someone did this and how someone, why someone would take the time when you see these pictures, these are intricate carvings. These mm-hmm. are not crude at all. There's a great deal of detail. And so someone did it with a purpose. You're, you know, you're an artist. Other artists will know that when you create a piece of art or a piece of work, it takes you several days of your life. You don't do it frivolously. And this was not done frivolously. Uh, uh, uh... Ron, uh, gets us to the point where you know we need to talk about the types of tools that could have been used. It's uh, you know not you know just the uh, like you you know, were talking about earlier with the patina, some of the uh, you know wear at uh, you know one of the ends. You know, this is older, uh, so it, there had to be some kind of like really fine uh, tool that was used uh, to carve this, you know, these images deep enough into this, uh, basically a pebble, and you know, it's probably going to have to have some kind of <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, vice or you know, channel locks to hold it in place while you're carving it. But you know, you're you know, they're going deep enough into this pebble that the weathering really didn't affect 
the entire rock. So the, the yeah, you, images you are think, still you there. Would think that it would be, yeah, you would think that the images would be completely worn off. Uh, They're not. This was found, like I said, it was 50 feet above the current uh, shoreline of Lake Superior. Who knows how long it had laid there being tossed around. Uh, and the patina is quite uh, rich. You, know, you can tell this has been handled a lot over a long period of time. Uh, so who knows how that thing – by the way, and I want to make sure that we get this in because I don't know how much time we have left, but this is not something that has been lost, by the way. This is an artifact that exists, and if people want to go see it, they can go see it. They can go to, we ho I hope that, that uh, qualified people go to examine this object because – it exists up there in Nama, Michigan, and, and uh, Charlie will show it to people if they want to come, or they can come to the uh, conference this, uh, this fall. We will have, this is not one of these things that, well, we had it, and now it's been lost, and no one mm -hmm. knows where it is. This thing is still exists. People can still look at it and photograph it and examine it. But yeah, how the, tool, the tools that were used to do this, um, I don't know. Have you ever done any woodworking or stoneworking? Have you ever done any of that? Uh, yeah, not I was a woodworker for years, and, a, and I did. I made a couple of knives. You know, working with. I was never any good with stone, uh, but this is a tiny little pebble. Excellent, uh, excellent word to use to describe it. And the fact that these images are carved so perfectly into it, and they have lasted long enough that we can still identify some of them. Uh, it had to have been done. This now I'm, I'm reaching here. I have, I have no authority to say this, but it had to have been done with some real uh, backing and some real purpose and intent. Someone wanted this carved for a, an important reason. It wasn't mm -hmm. something that was done by a child playing along the beach, uh, scratching it into sandstone. This was this is a, a real person, a real work of art done with purpose by someone. Yeah, if you're going to spend that much time, what? Uh, oh, it, 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 a long time. It, yeah, yeah uh, going what uh, eighth of an inch deep on a small pebble in su such fine detail. You, you you want to convey some kind of meaning. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was just, an important. Yeah, it was an important commemoration of some kind. Yeah, it was important. Yeah, we just don't know what what it means. Uh, you know. But you know what? I, but you know what I think, Mark. You know what I think? I, I so, think that this has been overlooked. I think that with this new, with these new high res pictures that I have, and then in conjunction with the image from the Perry, Barry Fowl book and the Westford Knight, that tying all these images together, that maybe someone who is who is a uh, you know is a PhD or somebody who has who, who spends their life in, uh, as an epigrapher epigraphic uh -huh. that is interpreting symbols can now take this this information that's been gathered and say well wait a minute we can really zero in on where this came from and the the overriding fact is that we know where and when it was found you know it wasn't dropped. Uh, you know, by someone who was sunning on the beach. It, it got there. Uh, someone was on a sea voyage, and, and it got there. Yeah, I, I, I so. you know, pro 
you're, you're probably going to have to match the, the symbols on the pebble to from some other locale. I, I, I don't, I, it's you know, pretty well, unusual. I think, done, I, think, I think we've done that. We've done it with Barry Fowl from uh, mm-hmm. uh, Scandinavia and with this Westford night. I mean, if the, if the, the, the buckler and the ship appear on that night's shield and they're almost identical to what is on this stone, that's an extraordinary connection. And I mm-hmm. hope that uh, some of the people who study those things can, because we never, keep in mind, none of these images were ever visible before um, the, the meeting uh, after the last AAPS conference when uh, we said, wait a minute, well, what is that there? And so that's when we decided to have the high-res photographs taken, and that's what brought these details out. And until two years ago, none of this was, anybody looking at the stone would have overlooked all these details altogether. Yeah. So yeah. this is relatively new stuff. Yeah, um, Ron, um, when we had uh, Mark and Lori Nicholas uh, as our guests a few months ago, you know, they uh, have in their uh, tra- translation of the uh, uh, you know the journals of the fifteenth uh, century Chinese. Uh, mariners uh, uh, making it to the Cahokia area, and you know, they did. Uh, l- l- you know, her her book starts from uh, it, the, her Feng Tu book uh, starts on like uh, chap- chapter eighty five, where they're leaving uh, a few day celebration in Venice and. And, uh, you know, they make the voyage to North America, and they come. Yeah, they uh, we call it, uh, moor in the Great Lakes and make their way south to Cahokia. Are any okay. of these images reminiscent of uh, patterns we see in Chinese? Artwork. I, I, I just want instead instead of just focusing only on like you know the the Phoenician or Viking possibility. Has anyone looked at the, the possibility that uh, th- this could have had Chinese origins? Uh, very insightful question. I'll, you got to. I'm going to give you two or three things there. Uh, I'll answer directly first. The the ship image um yes you know that, that's that's very common with the uh, the chinese but the buckler image the figure eight buckler image i don't remember ever seeing that in anything that has to do with oriental but no. uh so and, and and i don't want to get off into this thing that this is necessarily mediterranean either because we made this mistake when we were talking about the spider i say we i with the spider and the crescent moon uh, and the cartouches, everybody started focusing on looking at it was predisposed to think of the Mediterranean. I don't want anybody to be predisposed about anything about this, you know, because now it's got to be looked at with fresh eyes. And the, the, the other thing though, that has to be, we want to remember about the Orients, the Orientals 
uh, and getting as far as Cahokia and all that. You know, a lot of people talk about, well, how the copper got from um, the Keweenaw and from Isle Royal and got to the St. Lawrence Seaway and they, you know, where are the ships and all that. And I'm working up some numbers now on using canoes, uh, which are very revealing. But one thing a lot of people don't realize is that if you go to Ontonagon and enter the Ontonagon River, and paddle up the Ontonagon River, you reach a point where even uh, back in these times, back around prehistoric times, there was a spot where you could get out and in two portages put your canoe or vessel uh, into the Mississippi River mm-hmm. and, and go all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, which takes you right by Cahokia and takes you so just because you could go down there doesn't mean you couldn't go up it. There was a, a, a waterway that went through uh, the center of the uh, upper peninsula where the Whitefish River is. Uh, and th- that was another way for this to be done. So going back, the symbolism of the double-hulled ship is is not unusual at all, but the symbolism of the double-hulled ship in conjunction with that figure eight looking or birdhead looking symbol is I, the only place I've ever seen it is uh, on this bronze age carving from Scandinavia and on the, the uh, shield of the Westford Knight, which are both European. I'm sure it appears a lot of other European things too, if it appears there. So that's European, not Oriental. That, that's the only, I, I, I've not seen those two combined in Oriental symbolism. No, it, it, it just you know with the images that you, know, you sent to us and you know what, what's in the magazine. I, it, it, it's just like one of those uh, artworks where it's like I, uh, okay, it, uh, like uh, it, it's very difficult to find a frame of reference of where. This the, the ideas could have come from. I I I just find it really intriguing. I mean, it, it, like there's also like a uh, uh, almost like a flail, you know, like where where the arms are crossed on like King Tut's tomb, and he's hold, holding like that that uh. uh like C yeah, shape, right? Yeah, that's on there. It's like uh, okay, that's the symbolism of that's a symbol of, of of power. But you're, you're on exactly the right course here. What we need for someone to do is to look at these images that you guys are going to put up and and say, oh, well, I've seen this image with this is used as this symbol in this culture, this culture, in this culture. Mm-hmm. And it was not, and in, in, in the case like the Westford Knight, on his shield, you know, this is this is a blessing on the shield. And the Native Americans put blessings on, put symbols on their shields to protect them in battle. Everybody did that, mm-hmm. uh, and, and as did the Chinese. Everybody did that. So yeah, I, I don't think there's any question that. And of course, this is where I always end up stopping is because I don't have the training in this. But here are these symbols across three different timelines. Three different, um, I don't know about the one in Scandinavia, 
But I, I do know the Westford Knight uh, stone still exists, and I know the Macintosh stone still exists. So if someone wants to say, well, these are all lost, they're not real. No, they are real. And they're all, they all predate uh, 1400. Mm-hmm. So we should be able to put that whole controversy aside. And uh, there's another whole history here. Okay. Hey, uh, Ron, we're approaching three, four minutes uh, left. And oh, no. You know, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, it, it sounds like you had enough fun where ho- hopefully we can get you to uh, come back and uh, talk more, you know, give us updates. But, you know, we do want to give you uh, – you know, time to uh, plug uh, more about your website. You know, uh, if people want to contact you, how how they do that. Uh, you know, you're uh, you know, you'll be speaking at AAPS. What? Um, so you know, just tell, tell everyone, you know, uh, about your social media sites, et cetera. You, you want me to do a com- You want me to do a commercial? Be happy to. Yeah, get uh, pl- yeah. Pl- plug away. Yeah, so it's, it's michiganbackroads.com. Michiganbackroads.com. That's the way to find me. My contact information is there. My email is there. My books are there. I have five books in print. Oddities and Rarities is the current one where the erroneous information about this stone is. So you want to buy that book now because it will become a collector's item. Uh, when it's updated, because all the typographical errors will be corrected. Uh, so you want to get a copy of that. And, uh, yeah, I will be at – I speak all over Michigan. My, uh, If you go to MI Backroads, Facebook MI Backroads, all these are linked. Go to michiganbackroads.com. All the links are there to find what I do. And I speak all over Michigan, and I will be at the uh, AAPS in October, and I'm certain that Charlie McIntosh is going to be there with this stone. So if people want to come to that conference, um, they still have the early bird price, and they can come and they can examine this object and make their own, you know, do their own analysis of it. And I, I would like to come back. I, I've got some other great stories about the Viking tool that's an Antonagon and the uh, the uh, tronic circles that are deep in the forest that no one's ever photographed except me. Uh, you know, the Zegogon ruins. I've got all kinds of those kinds of things. But again, you know, I, I, I'm not a, an expert on this stuff. I'm just a guy who, who hears about it, and then I just have to go find out about it. Okay. But, uh, this is... So there's your com- there's a commercial. Okay. Uh, uh, that's great. And... and Can I make an, an addition here? Sure. I, Mark, yeah. I know you've got to make a sure. phone call. Hi, but, Barbara. Um, hi there. Have you ever had... Um, an empath or someone who is sensitive do psychometry with the, with the coin? Um, no, I have not. That might be interesting. It might be very I mean, interesting. I, of course, see, I don't have I it mean, in my possession. It, 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 you know, it, it lives with its owner. But I, it, it, not, I would love to have that happen. I would love to see someone take a hold of this who can tap it because it's very old. I mean, it's very well, old. you know, it everything has an energy, and of course, this has been passed around by a lot of people. But if somebody 
and and I'm 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 not saying just look for a psychic on the corner. I'm I'm saying look for somebody who has documented authenticity type stuff to them, and because because I Mark, know that Mark might quite, know about that too. Mark might know. No, Mark, not, Mark not, might know some of those not, folks who because they come to the AAPF, so he might know somebody who could step up. Yeah, yeah, we um, yeah, we talk about that. To, to, well, you know, just try to get some help. I do uh, have a great follow-up for you. You know, after after this next conference, if some people look at it, it'd be a great uh, follow-up show. Sure. It would. We'll do, it would we'll be. You know, in, instead of doing ghost hunting, it would be fun to to line up um, a series of sensitives and have each of them hold a stone, yeah, get their impressions, then have them write down what they got, and then compile it all and those things that everybody got use them as so we could even not we could even have a, a blind uh test where we tell some people what they're looking at and tell the others what they're don't tell the other people and, and this is one of the and i'm glad you brought this up Barbara, because i wanted to make it clear how a lot of what i've discovered on this would not have happened if it hadn't been for coincidences and serendipity and just pure accidents you know, uh-huh. if, if one woman sitting in an audience hadn't said, well, can you flip that over, a whole new line of investigation never would have been done. And it had to, it, it had to be fate or providence stepping in and saying, hey, Ron, wake up. <laughs> you know, it, it, well, I mean, I can't believe that it wasn't. No, I can't believe that it wasn't something like that. Yeah, I just I've seen so many times where where they've taken people who do psychometry and you know, given them all different, given them the opportunity to, to, to go with the energy and write down what they have. And quite often, um, you know, it, 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 you compile the information. And, but Mark is telling me I have to shut up. So um, we'll well, no, But I'd love to hear, <laughs> hear more about this. Yeah, I'd love to hear more because I have the sensitive, sensitivity of a walnut, but, but I would love to hear more about this possibility of investigating this thing. So. Okay. <laughs> Who's giggling? I hear somebody giggling. That's my right. snorting. All right, Mark, Barbara, thank you so much for having me. I hope we can thank, do this again. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, we good. will, Ron. That was a lot of fun. Th- thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. Right. Have a good night. All right, you too. Good night. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Here, I thought I was keeping him occupied so you could call Catherine. So Oh, I've lost Mark too. Oh, so the show is mine. Well, <clears throat> Mark may have to call back in. So well, well he is either getting Catherine or um calling back in, whichever the case may be. Um I, I'll go more into what I was what I was suggesting. Um, I, a long time ago, I worked with the police department, and they had a whole lot of sensitives slash psychics, and they would they would give us um, pieces of information and ask us to um, to tune into it to sort of give them what they got. And I worked on one case that was a murder case, which I don't want to ever do again. But um, 
there were, I think, nine of us, and we all took the information. We all meditated over it. We all gave the police what we got, and we literally were able to um, recreate what had happened and even get the get the license plate number of the van that had been used, and they were able to apprehend the man that, that um, had, had done the dirty deed. So it's not that... It's not that it's something that should be used all the time. It's something that can be used to, you know, it's it's not an absolute, but in conjunction with other types of evidence, it can enhance things and um, bring bring information more together. So it's it's really it's kind of a cool thing. That you, Mark? Yes. Okay. Kind of a little tech issue there. Yes. Okay. And found out one way of producing wasn't working too well. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> but we do I know our guest is there. Okay. Oh, did she call and into the show? No, I'm going to call her right now. Okay, that's a good idea. Otherwise, we could just talk. Oh, oh, she's she she's there. Just uh... I was kidding. Hello. Okay. The guest is there. We just got sidetracked for a couple minutes, but uh, she's she's here. So uh, well, we had an exciting yeah for, first hour. We even got to mention Barry Lyndon. So uh, oh. uh, uh, that was a nice lead, lead in to you. And yeah, um, let's see. Yeah, uh, yeah Sereni's birthday's coming up. So ha- happy early birthday to her. It's not the Red Dragon Riders' uh, birthday, but it could be uh, Big Z's the yummy uh, Greek food lady and her sidekick had their birthdays last month. But, you know, we are celebrating Shakespeare's 455th birthday and 403rd death day. Uh, you know, the Folger Library is celebrating, but Nightlight isn't. So what Carrick information do we know that the academics don't know? But, uh, so to add to our secret archives... Our second hour guest is Catherine Children, and uh, she has been studying the Shakespeare authorship controversy for many years. Uh, probably served her term as a secretary treasurer of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, and she contributed two chapters to the contested year, and is the author of Shakespeare Suppressed. Her website is shakespearesuppressed.com. So. Uh, uh, welcome, Catherine, to Nightlight. Uh, thanks for returning. Oh, my pleasure, and, Mark. Yeah. Thank you. And Barbara, thank you so much. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. W- w- when you were on with us in uh, September, early, early fall, um, yeah, uh, yeah, you, you and. Uh, Ramon Jimenez, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, split time, but uh, you know, you're just 
you know, you're also promoting the a conference and yeah you know, uh, for the a few minutes that you know about an hour you know there were a few minutes where I screwed up with the uh producing stuff but um you know, I want to go into a little bit more detail uh about the Shakespeare authorship controversy and you know uh you know I think Ron's uh you know we kind of looking at trying to dispel some myths uh in the first hour um Maybe we can start off the second hour dispelling the or proving the uh, uh, Francis Bacon was a candidate for the writing of the plays we all read in high school. Uh, What's the status of that theory? Well, uh, Francis Bacon was an early favorite for for those who doubted the Shakespeare authorship. And we're talking about the 19th century and uh, part of the early 20th century. Um, And it it sort of made sense because if you look at the profile of the the great author, William Shakespeare, uh, the uh, breadth of knowledge was enormous. Um, uh, he, He knew the law. He knew the sciences. He was a philosopher, and he left a great body of work, but it was mostly philosophical and scientific. Um, and but I mean, it made sense to turn to him because of the great author's huge amount of knowledge. But it wasn't then yet discovered about the Earl of Oxford, um, and so uh, another reason is that Bacon was not known as a playwright or a famous poet. He, as far as we know, he only wrote uh, one or two masks for the court. And a mask was a, a form of a play, but not, not a full play like, like we know it. Mm-hmm. So, and also there's no um, real life parallels. Um, so very few people today, and as far as I know, um, are, are Baconians. Uh, pretty much in 1920, when um, J. Thomas Loney discovered the Earl of Oxford as Shakespeare, he took a very scientific approach and he, he evaluated the plays and the poems and came up with a profile of who the great author, you know, who, what characteristics he had, and so he tried to find somebody who would match them all. And it turned out to be the Earl of Oxford, and he really has been the lead candidate since 1920. And his followers include many famous people, including um, uh, Sigmund Freud. Uh, the, he corresponded, I believe, with uh, Mr. Loney. So, um, and then thereafter, Supreme Court justices and actors like Orson Welles. Um, if if uh, listeners want to go to doubtaboutwill.org, you'll see a whole list of the famous doubters and many of them with very high academic degrees. So um, that's okay. That's why I would say it was not Bacon. Okay. Well, and you just mentioned the uh, you know, since 1920. 
with the discovery of uh, Edward de Vere as someone who you know, really has the uh, background and characteristics, uh, and you know, he, he uh, really should be considered as the uh, leading candidate for... Yes, and he was uh, a famous playwright in his day, an acknowledged mm-hmm. playwright. None of his plays have unfortunately survived with his name on it, uh, but there was a reason for that, which we can go into. Yep. I, he was also a famous poet during his lifetime and acknowledged this one. Okay, and uh, that, that, that was where I was going with yeah, you emphasize in your book, Shakespeare Suppressed, that you know, the plays were basically a public performance. But it's in the sonnets that you know, uh, autobiographical uh, themes appear, you know, just uh, how the author felt uh, about people, his uh, innermost uh, thoughts, and that's where this uh personality emerges that is completely different than the, the one that the our high school history or in, English teacher uh presents to us and the, the you know college professor would uh, uh include in his his books on uh, the subject and you know present in class and you know, it's really by understanding the sonnets that the real author's relationships with uh, several people uh, emerges, and you know, I I, I just remember uh, in my. Uh, uh, Shakespeare classes, and you know, there's you know this uh, discussion, and you, know, you bring it up in your book too that you know there could uh, be an interpretation of uh, uh, an o- older man having feelings for this uh, younger guy, and it's you know a little bit of like a you know gay relationship, but if you you make the point. That if you look at it, as, at the the 154 sonnets as more of a uh, parenting manual, you, you, it, it become becomes very clear that it it's really a father talking to his son. Yes, um, I, I totally believe that. Um, but I think, you know, going to your first point, the, the sonnets really reveal the great author, who he was. Mm-hmm. And um, it, unfortunately, none of it squares with the orthodox uh, Shakespeare, who is the man born in Stratford-on-Avon. He, he was the wrong guy. Um, if you look at the sonnets, um, the author tells us that he was someone highly ranked. For example... In Sonnet 62, he says, Methinks no face so gracious is as mine, 
gracious is a word that was uh, that Shakespeare used to describe nobility and royalty in his plays. Um, another one you've brought, you've mentioned it before, um, Sonnet 125, where it ought to me I bore the canopy with my extern, the outward honoring. And this is a clear reference to um, the canopy of, that would be held over Queen Elizabeth. Um, and only important people or courtiers would be, have the privilege of holding, you know, like four poles uh, that hold a canopy over the queen as she makes a progress, um, you know, public progress. Um, so, and here he's saying, was it anything to me that I bore this canopy, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Like a uh, a bored courtier would say, not somebody with from humble origins uh, who would be thrilled to, to do such a thing. <laughs> and there's also a mention of him being disgraced, um, there is mention of him being lame and like he felt like death was nearing. Um, there's also mention that he was using a pen name. For example, in Psalm 72, he says, my name be buried where my body is and live no more. So uh, these are all characteristics that tell us he was not the man from Stratford and that he was somebody who was someone very highly placed. And when you know that, uh, then you can read more into the sonnet, the eye. And um, uh, the sonnets, a great deal of them, about 75% of them, um, are the deal with the, they call him the fair youth, the beautiful young man uh, that the great author loves and finds his, his beloved. But as you mentioned, I, I don't believe this is a sexual relationship. I believe it's a father-son relationship. Um, and he, he lauds them in such high terms because he believed that he was a child of the monarch, Queen Elizabeth. And um, if you want, we can go further into that. But I think that is kind of the the reason ultimately why the great author never got credit for his own works. Okay. Well, uh, okay. You know, uh, we'll get to uh, discussing the, the mom in a minute, but uh, it, these songs were written between 1592 through uh Ninety-five, ninety-six, somewhere in that vicinity. He wrote like 154 sonnets in, you know, roughly a four-year period. And you know, I was doing some prep for uh, you know, tonight's show. In sonnet two, it talks of uh, when forty winners shall besiege thy brow. Yeah, that kind of sounds like uh, you know, the, the the real author has reached a stage in his life where yeah, you know, just actually doing some serious reflecting on his life and wanting to communicate something to his son. 
but uh, yes, it also indicates a, 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 an age difference between the two. We have an older man kind of reflecting on his life, and he, yeah. at the same time, he's lauding a young man, beautiful young man. Uh, and um, actually, the first 17 or so sonnets, he is urging this young man to marry and have mm-hmm. children. Uh, emphatically, he really wanted him to do that. And again, this is not something that squares with um, a man who, you know, yeah, the, the, has a, yeah. a homosexual desire. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the the, the uh, man from Stratford in fifteen ninety two isn't even forty. Uh, he he's like. O- only in his early thirties. I mean, yeah. th- th- there, there's you know, you know we're already talking about a, a different, a, a significant age difference uh, approaching ten years. All right, right. so it, it already just sounds like the real author and the one we're told who wrote the stuff, or there's like a ten year age difference. How, how does that fit in with? Um, uh, Edward De Vere's uh, you, you know, time timeline was he uh, around ten years older than yeah. the man from Shucks in the 1590s or so? Yes, he was in his 40s, and okay. of course the young man who almost it's almost universally accepted that he was the third Earl of Southampton, uh, Henry Rosley was his name. And uh, he was at that time. He, he was in his very early twenties, uh, and we don't know exactly when all the sonnets were written. They could have been written a little bit earlier, uh, as well. But um, there was certainly about a twenty or so year gap between the Earl of Oxford and the Earl of Southampton, and he lauds him um, as somebody higher than himself. Like one of the sonnets, he calls him Lord. Lord of my love, um, who I in vassalage serve, something like that. So in, the Earl of Oxford had one of the highest titles in the land, and he was the 17th of, of, of a long line of earls. The, the Earl of Southampton was only the third. So again, we have kind of an inversion um, of, you know, he, the, the great author seemed to think that he was of higher rank than himself. Now, again, if you go back to the Stratford man, um, the Stratford man, somebody of no rank whatsoever, uh, urging the young man to have uh, children, marry and have children for love of him, that would have been an affront on a, you know, a nobleman's name. So, again, it's not something that would work with the, uh, the Stratford man of Shakespeare. Yeah, it, it, it's... Sounds like that Edward de Vere and his son. Um, I, I, okay, you know they're close, but at the early stages uh, of the writing of the sonnets. Um, Devere still seems like he has 
a high opinion of uh, Henry's mom. Uh, you know, I was looking uh, like in Sonnet Three talks about uh, thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. Kind of flattering. Yes. Yes. Um, um, yeah. Just and then I don't know what thirty years later. Yeah, you mentioned in uh, saw the first line is one twenty five. It's like, uh, yeah, it's like didn't mean anything to me to hold a ten over you know, your mom. And it seems like there's like yeah you know, through the if you look at the the sonnets at, at the in the way that you pre, uh, present the information as it's almost like looking at a family unit and it, 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 you can see that they later in uh, 30, 20, 30 years later they didn't like each other uh, uh, Edward and Elizabeth didn't like each other um, I guess well, yeah, maybe a jaded, a jaded feeling because um, Oxford, um, he, she didn't really promote him at court, and he was stuck with a lot of debts uh, to the crown, and um, she didn't do a lot to alleviate it. Although she did grant him a thousand pound per year uh, annuity, which was like close to a million dollars now. Wow. Um, uh, perhaps to you know help him um, a little bit, and she, he didn't have to make any reckoning of what he did with the money. So it really was a gift, and she rarely gave such gifts. So um, some people think it was to compensate for writing the Shakespeare plays and, or, and produce them, which was you know, very expensive, especially before the Queen. And they had to be a little bit more you know, luxurious um, as far as costumes, sets, and things. But um, you know, going back to uh, the Earl of Oxford having a son by Queen Elizabeth, um, in Sonnet 76, uh, the, the great author says, Why write I still all one, ever the same? And that actually can be read as the Earl, uh, emerging of two mottos. The Earl of Southampton's motto, uh, one for all, all for one. And Queen Elizabeth's motto, um, semper idem, which means ever the same. So um, mm. all in one line. And then Evere ever could be a play on Edward de Vere. Evere. So, wow. These are curiosities. But, but if you read them all in these contexts, it makes sense. Yeah, and... Yeah, there's also in Sonnet 36, it talks uh, talks about uh, I may not evermore acknowledge thee, you know, speaking to his son, and then you know, back to 66 uh, that you, know, that you mentioned 
in your book, Shakespeare suppressed as well, and, and you make a, a really, really uh, powerful point about you know, the line, and arts made tongue-tied by authority. It, it, it sounds like the uh, Queen Elizabeth was you know, re- really uh, did something to silence him, uh, Edward de Vere. Like, there, there's just something where uh, his relationship with his son uh, came to an end. It, it, it wasn't uh, uh, it, it, something happened, and and this tongue that you know, like the tongue-tied by authority was something imposed on Edward. Uh, you know, I, uh, he's another member of nobility. I, so, you know, there could only be a few uh, uh, candidates who could have that power yeah. over authority him. Authority would be, yeah. you know, either the queen or somebody high in her government. And yeah. I think it could be the latter. It could have been um, uh, Sir Robert Cecil, who pretty much was running things uh, at the very end uh, of Queen Elizabeth's life the last couple of years. And um, it mm. brings us to the Essex Rebellion of 1601, mm-hmm. and Earl of Southampton was one of the main conspirators, the Earl of Essex and the Earl of Southampton. Okay, and, uh, uh, what was that about? Well, um, Essex really wanted to he, – he didn't necessarily want to depose the queen, but he wanted to get – Remove the influence of Sir Robert Cecil, and it was kind of a faction between those those two. And unfortunately, Cecil won, <laughs> and um, Essex lost lost his head. But uh, surprisingly, the Earl of Southampton, who was convicted of treason and sentenced to death, uh, the sentence was not carried out. And I think that here may have been a deal between the great author Shakespeare and Robert Cecil to, to keep him alive. And um, yeah, I think it was to keep quiet about his authorship of Shakespeare. Why? Why would that be so valuable? Well, because several of the plays uh, were, you could say, political commentaries, or like, for example, in Hamlet, um, the main counselor uh, of, of King Claudius was Polonius. And Polonius, many, many historians accept that Polonius was a lampooning of uh, Sir William Cecil, later Lord Burley. And, um, you know, he was the most powerful man in England at the time. And um, how, can, how can Shakespeare, you know, make fun of him like that? It, 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 it was obvious. It must have been obvious then as it is now that that's what was occurring. So he, if, if, if he said, you know, never own up to being Shakespeare, it would mean that no one would make this connection because the only person who could make this connection would be someone who knew Lord Burley 
and that was certainly the Earl of Oxford. So if the world knew that the Earl of Oxford wrote Hamlet, they would see it instantly, and they would see uh, Queen Gertrude as possibly being Queen Elizabeth, and they would make other connections. And um, that's just one example. There are others mm-hmm. in other plays, and of course the sonnets. The sonnets really tell a lot. And um, you know, if if the Earl of Southampton really was Queen Elizabeth's child, that would affect the succession, mm-hmm. and that would be another reason to keep it quiet. Because if the world knew the Earl of Oxford wrote those sonnets, which were then only circulating in manuscript. They were not printed yet. Um, but if the world knew this, they would read into them and say, hey, looks like Queen Elizabeth had a, a child. Who was this child? You see? And uh, then the unthinkable happened um, five years after the Queen died, or six years. Um, these sonnets were printed. And I think that created a crisis um, by people who supported the successor of Queen Elizabeth, who was King James of Scotland. And they didn't want to, you know, rock the boat. They didn't want the public at large to know that um, there may be another uh, person who really should be having the throne, a direct descendant of the Queen. And um, I think that that ultimately sealed uh, Oxford's fate uh, to never be known as the great author Shakespeare. And the the cover-up plans for a cover-up began at that point, in my opinion. And you you do mention um, that the actual use of the term prince is in sonnet uh, 55 you also have uh, uh, you know, draw our attention to some of the imagery like there's something about a, a rose and a sun so it, uh, the, the rose was uh, you know, the Tudor Beauty symbol. Rose. Yeah. Yeah, that was an expression in a few of them. And mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth was known as Beauty. She was mm-hmm. called Beauty by other authors. And Beauty's rose would be her child. And that sounds very much, rose sounds very much like Rosely, Henry Rosely, the Earl of Southampton. So. Mm. Yeah, it yeah. all seems to like flow very, very smoothly when you have this correct point of view. In my opinion, it, it all fits like a god. Yeah, and, and that's what. And when you were on uh, in, in the fall with Ramon, I, you know, we're just, just kind of talking a little bit about everything, and uh, you know, you got uh, some of the our. Uh, the, the need to redate the plays, but you know, since since, since we have you on just you know by by yourself tonight, it, it, and it, it, the topic has already been laid down, you know, for the audience to understand about the you know there is a little bit more to the story than you know uh, you know what we're told uh, you know, back in high school. Yeah, you know, you've had. Uh, 
a lot more time to delineate the you know, some of these points, uh, and it just it becomes really fascinating. One, like you said, once you see the the story uh, present, presented as uh, a parent. You know, dad talking to his son. This whole, the whole fifty-four sonnets actually fits together, and it's just like you know, when Ron was talking in the first hour about, hey, just turn the rock another way. Oh, it, this whole new perspective mm-hmm. emerges, and. It, 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 you know, the understanding of, uh, you know, what was going on in Queen Elizabeth's courts, you know, what, 450 years ago, it, it, it's just all starting to make sense. You know, what may, uh, uh, Edward de Vere is hushed up, you know, or, or uh, the, the Southampton is more you know, it's kind of like dismissed, uh, you know, just to avoid uh, almost like a civil war you know, with this mm-hmm. uh, su- su- succession issue. It, 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 you know, it, it's points like this that you know, has made uh, uh, Shakespeare suppress such a uh, fascinating book uh, about uh, understanding what was really going on at that time. And you know, it doesn't does it make a whole lot of difference today? I don't know, but you know. Yeah, it does make a difference today. Because, oh, okay. Um, pe- well, people um, who love Shakespeare and the Shakespeare plays, they're going to love them even more so when they have a real biography to, mm-hmm. to put next to them. <laughs> um, you know, if they know the Earl of Oxford's life, which is what you do when you when you do a course on any great artist. You you learn about their life first. If you mm-hmm. learn about the Earl of Oxford's life, an incredible story, uh, and then you read the plays, you see all these parallels come alive, and you understand him better. And like for example, imagine his pain. You know, the Earl of Oxford's and my belief son, the Earl of Southampton, um, having an affair with his mistress. You know, there was a love triangle between his son and his mistress. And that is told in the sonnets as well, the dark lady. And um, okay, uh, you know, that, imagine his pain. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, that, that almost sounds like a Jerry Springer episode. <laughs> I know, and it, and it gets that way. Once, once you are filled in with the details. And that's what makes this so exciting to, to know about it. Okay, so you feel like you're an insider. <laughs> okay, so uh, Queen Elizabeth and Edward de Vere uh, break up at some at some point, and okay, uh, Dad and his son are. Uh, 
dating this the 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 same lady. Okay, so who's 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 the dark lady? Uh, uh, What's the uh, story there? Yeah, well, if you ask, you know, any uh, any Shakespeare professor, you know, they're clueless. They don't know who she is. There's been a controversy for for since the beginning of who this dark this lady with dark hair and dark eyes and uh, was promiscuous and um, you know was cheating on him. And who who was she? Uh, well, if the Earl of Oxford is Shakespeare, it's very obvious who she was. Um, she, uh, the Earl of Oxford had an affair with a dark lady named Anne Vavasor with dark hair and dark eyes. And she was uh, one of the queen's attendants. Um, after Oxford took his grand tour of Europe, which was about a year and a half, uh, when he came back, uh, he, he learned that his, his, he, he was told that the child that he had by his wife was delivered later than he, he, he was told. So he pretty much abandoned his wife because he believed she was unfaithful. And he kind of went off and, and he started an affair with another lady, and that is the dark lady. Um, she was uh, in her, I believe, late teens at the time, and uh, they had a, a child together. So it was an, another, it was a scandal upon a scandal. And um, he was pretty much obsessed by her. Um, and she's pretty much described in the sonnet. And um, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but Queen Elizabeth sort of put her foot down and uh, threw them into the Tower of London, including the baby. Uh, But Oxford loved her and the baby so much that he named the child after himself, you know, an illegitimate son, Edward Vere. And um, eventually he was released, but pretty much it was incumbent on him to go back to his wife which he did. But uh, the affair kept on because there were uh, fights between Oxford and his men and uh, Anne Vavazor's family members and their men. There were street fights, which is very reminiscent of Romeo and Juliet uh, with the street fights, you know, forbidden love. And um, eventually Oxford got hurt pretty badly and... um, uh, we know, it, based on his letters, he a few times, once or twice, he says he's lame, and also the man of the sonnets uh, says that he's lame. So, yeah, she she really consumed his life, and um, not a, f- a few years later, um, Oxford's wife died, and he was basically free. Um, however, Anne Vavasor at that time was married, and if you read. I believe it's Sonnet 152, he, he basically says, reveals that they are both married because he remarried. So um, that they were both breaking their bed vows. So um, while they were both married, they both committed adultery uh, with each other. So he really must have been uh, obsessed by her to, you know, keep her in his life. Um, and sh- thereafter, she had an affair with somebody else, 
maybe even at the same time, um, and had an illegitimate child by him. So um, she's a very fascinating woman, and she certainly qualifies as Shakespeare's dark lady. Okay. In yeah. fact, she even she even um, she married while her first husband was still alive. She was accused of bigamy, and she was fined for it. So <laughs> she was quite a woman. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, I think our audience is getting a whole new uh, reevaluation of. The Elizabethan courts uh, tonight. Uh, uh, this is perfect. This is exactly what we, you know, we want to do on Nightlight. But you know, you also you know pre- <laughs> present a lot of information that does not gel with what's presented in the traditional Shakespeare. Uh, Biography, you know, even even with those few uh, lost years, uh, that that was before you know he was old enough to get into all, <laughs> all this uh, trouble with the uh, you know ladies at court. So I, I mean, none of your information is consistent with the traditional. Biography. Yeah, well, yeah, the traditional biography has absolutely no parallels with the sonnets or any of the plays. So, unfortunately, so um, he really needs to be discounted. And, um, you know, the public at large and the Shakespeare professors, they've got to come to terms with the fact that there were two William Shakespeare's of this period who were involved with the theater. One was a man born in Stratford-on-Avon with the name William Shakespeare. Actually, it was Shakespeare. And the other one was a nobleman, the Earl of Oxford, using a pen name, William Shakespeare, as in spear-shaking. And spear-shaking during this period was another term for jousting. Um, And the Earl of Oxford was a champion jouster. He won two tournaments. This is all documented. So, um, and often the name Shakespeare for the author was hyphenated, you know, with a hyphen between Shake and Spear, which was an indication of a made-up name. So, um, we have to, if you just look at the evidence, there's nothing that connects the Stratford man to writing or education while he was alive. Um, it's all after he died, that the case was made that he was the great author. But no one in his lifetime said he was, and, and including his, his parents, his children, and his grandchild never said so, and his neighbors, and the town of Stratford-on-Avon never said so, too. So um, all of this has to be taken into account. Okay, so, so some of this... Omissions, misleading information that you just mentioned, it, uh, that does appear in the first folio. Yeah, you, know, you do have uh, that, that reproduced in your book 
as well. And uh, you know, you, know, you even uh, reproduce the uh, blank pages. So um, maybe you know we're down to like twelve minutes left. Uh, so so let's talk about why why so much of the first folio is blank with the uh, information that should should be used to give us a uh, a biography of this author that n no one uh, knew about. That's a great question. Yeah, why well, you you have uh, about I think it's about sixteen pages of opening prefatory material, and as you say, five of those pages are blank. Um, we, they could have put a biography of the great author in there, but they didn't do that. They, instead, they had the tributes by various people, people who weren't even dramatists. Um, uh, Hugh Holland and uh, someone named Holland, someone named Diggs, someone named Mab, they were, they were not dramatists. Um, it, it wasn't like it was his peers. Only Ben Johnson, he, um, he, he gave a wonderful tribute, and he was a dramatist. Um, but, yeah, uh, all we have of a biography in there is on one page, some, uh, someone mentions Stratford Monument in relation to the great author. And then Ben Johnson calls Shakespeare Sweet Swan of Avon. So, and this is on a different page. You put those together, you have Stratford on Avon, and that that took hold, obviously, because from that point on, and we're talking 1623, when the Stratford man had been dead dead for seven years, um, that it became uh, a fait accompli, especially because in the church in Stratford on Avon was a monument to Shakespeare. But it was not the monument that we know today, where a man, um, bald-headed with an upturned mustache, is holding a quill uh, and, and paper. Uh, it, it was a totally different monument, and we have documentary evidence uh, of that, uh, a drawing made in 1634, that shows a man with a downward drooping mustache and a beard holding a sack. Um, <laughs> So, um, obviously, it had been totally, uh, the original had been dismantled, and uh, they remade it to be one more appropriate to a writer, instead of somebody who was, it appears to have been the Stratford man's father who was being depicted, uh, who was a trainer of wool, so the sack would be a wool sack. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay. It just goes on and on, you know, the hopes, hopes after hopes. Okay, so uh, the, the original monument doesn't a add up either, you know, along with the traditional biography. It's uh, the Stratford, uh, Sweet Swan of Avon comment and Stratford mentioned a, a couple pages later in the first folio was a uh, was a, a, a misnomer or a misdirection. It just all, all this information presented tonight is uh, 
presents just a, 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 yes. a, 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 yes. another personality. Yeah, and another fascinating thing about the first folio is that it was dedicated to the Earl of Oxford's son-in-law, <laughs> the Earl of Montgomery. Of course, um, Oxford had died before his daughter married uh, the Earl of Montgomery, but you know, it was his posthumous son-in-law. Um, the Earl of Montgomery and his brother, the Earl of Pembroke, both of them were uh, given the dedication to this book of Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. And they also were two of, two of uh, King James's biggest supporters. He, he really um, you know, gave them a lot of benefits. So they certainly wanted to keep him on the throne. So they were involved in this cover-up as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> it just yeah, it just yeah, you know, we just keep going deeper and deeper into this yeah. rabbit hole. Yeah, you know, with, with your book Shakespeare Suppressed, uh, you know, you are presenting a, a captivating story, unraveling all all these. Uh, you know, kind of like long forgotten uh, relationships. But uh, you, you, what, what did you want to do with the, you know, the information? Are you just like just trying to sort everything out. Yes, I. Well, I. You know, I. Of course, I've been. A, a believer that the Earl of Oxford was a great author for many, many years. And um, then I saw a debate on television, not a debate on television, um, a, a Shakespeare professor being interviewed um, on C-SPAN, and somebody asked him about the authorship question, and he, in essence, insulted people who believed that there is any doubt about this Trapper man. And, you know, so that, that inspired me to say, gosh, what makes him so confident in his man? So I really delved in the Stratford man in his case, and right off the bat I noticed all the evidence was after he died, the Stratford man. Uh, so that's why I divided the book into lifetime evidence and posthumous evidence. And if you look at the lifetime evidence, uh, contemporaries were, were saying it completely different different things, a different profile of a man. Um, you know, they were, they were hinting that he was a person of high rank. Uh, they were hinting that he wrote anonymously. Uh, you know, they were hinting that he was dead by 1605. Um, so, you know, you can read them. You know, you, you sort of have to delve a little bit deeper because they often used um, classical illusions mm-hmm. to make their point. They weren't overt. But if you, all you have to do, do is just dig a little beneath the surface, and you can read them correctly. And this is what contemporaries were saying, and it all points to the Earl of Oxford. Yeah. Okay, and, and, and you know, you're just giving credit to the right person, or you know, the person you think was the real author. Yes, I, I want everyone who loves Shakespeare to know who he really was, and. Kind of in a way, I believe that if we don't do this now, uh, you know, who knows? 
uh, in 100 years or so, people won't even know who Shakespeare was anymore. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the Earl of Oxford had such a colorful story. It's going to captivate people um, to, and, and inspire them to read and study him. Again, I think there would be a great renewal of Shakespeare and Shakespeare studies if they had the right biography. And, and you know, we're down to about three minutes. Um, uh, you know, your Shakespeare suppressed is highly praised by Sir Derek Jacoby, and it's what well, he—he—he's basically like today's. Uh, 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 Sir Lawrence Olivier, I, that, that's saying a lot about the, the convincing evidence you present in your book. Thank you. Yes, and there are many other actors, well-known actors like Sir John Gilgood and Michael York, and um, as I mentioned, Orson Welles, who all believed, uh, you know, doubted the Strafford man or believed that he was Daryl of Oxford, and. Um, you know, it's so obvious once you sort of look at this objectively. And it's something that we, you know, people who are in English literature courses, they should bring it up and, and not, you know, not challenge, but just, you know, talk about it. And, um, you know, maybe we may get a little bit of a change. Because really it's English professors who um, – are holding this back, in my opinion. They're they're just towing the line, the the orthodox line, um, and they really don't want to hear anything else. But everyone outside of that field, like historians and people of linguistics and other languages, doctors, med, you know, medical people, lawyers, Supreme Court justices, they all see that there is a reason to doubt the traditional attribution. Okay, and Catherine, we have uh, about a minute left. Uh, okay, uh, what's your website? Do you have any uh, uh, upcoming appearances uh, go, uh, go, going on, so, something in the works? Uh, well, I'm just working on another book at the moment. I'm not ready to talk about it. And um, But, yes, my, my website is shakespearesuppressed.com, and I, um, my book is available on Amazon. And also, I encourage people to um, ask their public libraries to order it. It's um, available for Baker and Taylor, uh, this big distributor. So um, that would be great. Okay. Hey, uh, um, we are just about out of time. We have Maria Wheatley next Tuesday. Barbara has an interesting show lined up uh, Monday. And uh, Barbara, I think that's. Uh, we're out of time now, so yeah. we'll see everyone uh, uh, next uh, Monday and Tuesday. 